It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only, call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 3814567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you into the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, May 14th, 2015. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father Greg Gwynn is here. Jacob, <laughs> Jacob, great to be with you tonight. To Looking forward to you. our study, as always, we on Thursday night. missed a week last week. We did a little rerun there, and somebody called me on that today. Said, you guys weren't on last week. And so uh, we were on vacation together last week, and so, so we, sort of we did a we yeah. played a previous episode rerun, and so but we're back live tonight, and we have a live guest tonight. We do. Uh, we're glad to welcome Ken Collins. He is a minister with the uh, Christian Church, and we stumbled acro- across a website of his uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah, Ken, welcome to the Virtual Bible Study. Hello. Yeah, are you hearing us okay? Yeah, I can hear you okay. Is my voice quality all right? You're just fine, Ken. It, it'll work fine, Thank yeah. you for joining us on, on the program tonight. Yeah, we came across your website a, a few weeks ago. Uh, it's at kencollins.com for those of our listeners who'd like to check it out. And a lot of interesting stuff there. And But we found an article that just piqued our uh, interest. You had an article that you had pinned uh, about con- uh, performing a- how to perform an emergency baptism. And and, and, and and I think we're not the first ones who's, who, who have had their attention caught by it. According to your article, Ken, you've gotten maybe some negative responses uh-huh. to the idea of an emergency baptism, which uh, you found somewhat surprising. Well, there were... Um you know, I trace back uh, who makes the link to my page sometimes, and I found that were I found a discussion where people were ridiculing the idea of an emergency baptism, and then I found an entry on there that said, "Have you guys actually read this page? This is what to do with a person who is in distress and they're about to die." He said, "I can't see how it's funny." to do uh, a kind thing to a person in distress. So I thought, well, he got it. I didn't have to uh, add anything to it. But uh, the emergency is is in the mind of the person who wants to be baptized. Well, I would be, I, we got a little bit of an emergency going on here. Some kids in the building have gotten hurt, I think, but... Uh, uh, so there's a little bit of hectic noise in the background there. But, you know, I, I, I don't have any problem with the terminology emergency baptism. I, I'd almost be willing to say every baptism is an emergency. If, if, if a person realizes that they're not in a right relationship with God uh, and they want to make their life right with God, uh, I would argue that any time a person is baptized, it's, emer- it's an emergency. A soul's at stake. That's right. Um, but I'm addressing the situation, I agree with you, but I'm addressing the situation where a person realizes suddenly that they need to be baptized, and they don't have any church or minister or any of that stuff around, and uh, maybe they're about to die or they have reason to believe they will. Um, there is a way to do an emergency, what, you know, a baptism in a circumstance like that. Yeah. Um, Suppose uh, you're you're on a tour of Egypt and you go out in the Sahara Desert on a camel, and uh, with you is a Muslim guide, and you get stuck in a sandstorm and you think you're never going to get home, and you realize I've never been baptized. I need to be baptized. Well, then what do you do? And this page answers that kind of question. Yeah. Or what happens if Aunt Minnie goes to the hospital? And she's all wired up in intensive care, and she suddenly, tearfully, reflecting over her life, realizes that she needs to be baptized. And uh, you know, and and so, what do you do? All right. So that's what it means. The emergency is not that it is intrinsically an emergency to have a baptism. Although I agree with you that all baptisms are an emergency. I'm talking about the 
received emergency of the person who wants to be baptized. How can you help them? And that's what that page is about. Okay, I understand. But so I think we're kind of clear on I, I understand the, the point of view from which you wrote that article. I understand that. But it, some of the things my, my questions to you, Ken, are more along the lines of some of the things that are mentioned in your article. And so I just I just ha- had a list of several questions that came to my mind as I was reading that. Uh, now, you again, you're affiliated with the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. Uh, I see from your little uh, uh, bio on your website that you are working with the Garfield Memorial Christian Church in McLean, Virginia, which I assume is just uh, just outside of Washington, D.C. It is. Yeah. Um, it's just a couple miles from the Pentagon. Oh, okay. Um, and it, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, I might add, is a member of the Church's Uniting in Christ, which is about 12 denominations. And so, um, uh, with the permission of the pastor, I could, uh, I could do communion in an Episcopal church or a Presbyterian church. I could pastor a Methodist church because all of our sacraments and ordinations are recognized by each other. And then we're in a larger group, uh, called, uh, the Consultation on Common Test, which works on a common version of the, uh, of the of baptism and of uh, the Lord's Prayer and the lectionary, which is the schedule of uh, Bible readings for church. Well, you and uh, yeah, uh, you've you've raised a new question that I want to ask you about because uh, because I would think that uh, I know I I know a little bit about the doctrines of several of those denominations that you mentioned, and it's it's uh, it's it's intriguing to me I, that you would be able to participate or, or even uh, conduct the the services of of congregations that don't agree necessarily with the doctrinal stances that you take so uh, uh, we that would be a big difference between us Ken because uh, you you have a, a, a more of an ecumenical approach to things than I would have. Maybe we'll talk about that in a minute. But let let me go. Let, let's go to this baptism thing uh, uh, directly. First of all, do you believe that baptism is necessary for salvation? Um, well, I would give that a conditional yes. Um, baptism is re- is not optional, but it is not required. Well, now that's, that's that sounds oxymoronic to me. Necessary, but not yeah. required. Explain that to me. All right, I'll explain that to you. It's not uh, you do not have the option of deciding not to be baptized because it is a commandment and it's an act of obedience. And you say Jesus is Lord, and then you go into the uh, you go into uh, the house of faith and stumble over the threshold by not obeying the first commandment. So you can't say that I do what Jesus does, but I don't do Jesus. Uh, uh, you know, I do what Jesus says, but I don't do what Jesus says at the same time. Yeah. So baptism, you do not have the option of deciding, well, I don't think I'll be baptized. Okay. Uh, it is a requirement by the church. However, there are circumstances in which baptism is impossible. And, uh, you know, like if you're converted when you're tied up to equipment in the ICU, or if you are converted while you're nailed to a cross. The thief on the cross is a good example. So it's not required, but it's not optional. So the only one who has an option about baptism is God. Okay. Now, I, I would quickly comment about the thief on the cross. We've discussed that that several times on our program over the years. We've been doing this program for about 10 years, and, and the thief on the cross has come up a number of times. I think the answer to the thief on the cross is that he was in the immediate presence of Jesus himself while he was on earth, and, and Jesus had the discretion to directly forgive his sins and uh, promise him salvation in paradise. Jesus was still alive. He hadn't died. His his will and testament had not gone into force yet. Uh, there were a number of people in the gospel accounts that Jesus directly forgave their sins. Uh, the thief on the cross was one of them. 
but I would not use the thief on the cross as an example for us today because we live after the death of Jesus, and the only way that we can participate in the blessings that he bestows is by adhering to his will, and his will, I think, in lots of places, Acts 2.38, you mentioned in your article, Acts 2.38, that baptism is for the remission of sins. Uh, Mark 16.16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. First Peter 3.21, baptism doth also now save us. Uh, Acts 22.16, arise, be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Just all those kind of passages. I, I, I don't see how we can say that it, you know, it, it's, not necessary to salvation. I, I, I would have. I, I guess I would have some difference with the the terminology. Yeah, I, can, I, can, yeah, I can see what you're saying. Now, the problem in the in the ancient church was they had a lot of persecution, and it took about the class, the class that you took to become a member of the church to to be baptized took about three years for the average person because you're starting out with a person who goes to a fertility temple, they have sex with a prostitute priest, and you have to teach morality, you have to teach them there's only one God, and all that other stuff, while flying under the radar of the Roman government. But there were persecutions, and so the people um, who were in the, in the catechism class could be persecuted for being Christians, even though they had not yet been baptized. So this uh, situation of the thief on the cross came up a lot in the ancient church, and so the ancient church reckoned the person who had been martyred for being a Christian, they reckoned that as uh, being baptized in their own blood, and so they were recorded as baptized. Now, now where, I, I got to stop you, Ken, and ask you where where is this where's this information coming from? That's it's, that's not scripture, obviously. Where are you? Where are you? No, no, that's not scripture. That's church history, and uh, yeah, and it's not authoritative, but it is illustrative, and it does show us how people closer to the original events interpreted the scripture. So it's important information, but it isn't binding on us. Um, theologically, yeah. Of course, uh, we know we know too, Ken, that there was a pretty there was a pretty rapid apostasy. Paul warned about it in his epistles about the apostasy that was already taking place. So, uh, I think we got to take. I I, I study uh, the church fathers as well, and I understand there's some value to to what they said and how they approached things. But we also have to we also have to acknowledge that uh, those are uninspired bits of information and they come from an era in which there was a a pretty rapid apostasy taking place uh, even according to the inspired apostle paul yeah that's yeah. true okay um but uh, what i'm saying is that uh, the idea that baptism is not required but it is enough to use to decide because if you said earlier Jesus can do anything he wants. And uh, so that means we try earnestly to do everything correctly. We might not do it correctly. Maybe we misunderstand the Bible. Uh, Maybe we misunderstand how to do it. But Jesus can do anything he wants. And so uh, he can decide, well, this person will count as baptized even though they weren't because of some happen yeah i i I would agree i would agree with that ken but that's not it that's not in our uh purview and that's that's not our prerogative to to issue those exceptions if if the lord decides to make an exception i don't know about it and i can't teach it because it's not revealed to me would you agree to that yeah yes i do agree to that but um when I tell people, you see, I'm going to tell people that, look, baptism is required. And then they think that I'm very legalistic and everything. Yeah. So then I say, uh, it's not, uh, I, I tell them that it's not optional, I mean. And uh, then they think I'm very legalistic or something. Well, no, it is not optional. You have to do it. But it is not required in the sense that there are situations which anybody could think of some, you know, but Sunday, high school Sunday, Sunday school class, somebody's going to come up with a scenario, and you say, 
uh, it's not required because God can do anything He wants, but don't count on that. Yeah. Well, that that would that would, I, I think that'd be my position. You, God can do what He wants, but he, two things: He won't violate what He said He will do, and the only thing we know that He will do is what He has revealed to us in His Word. Yeah. Hey, Ken, well, Ken hang on just a minute. We're gonna we, we take a break at the fifteen minute mark, and we're a little past that. We're gonna catch a quick uh, commercial break here, and we'll be right back to okay. you. We've got a couple more uh, very interesting discussion. Appreciate everything that uh, you have to uh-huh. say and. Looking forward to a couple more questions with you. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study will continue right after this. Enjoying the Virtual Bible Study? Email a friend during this break and tell them to join in on the discussion. There's more exciting Bible study after this commercial. Tonight on Channel 8 WSIN, it's TV like you've never seen it before. Starting at 8, it's TV's funniest new comedy, Fornication in the City, and Marie has been misbehaving again. Guess what? I just cheated on my husband. He doesn't even know about it. (laughs) And then at 8.30, it's the show that's setting the standard. You won't want to miss this week's I Love This World, where Bob makes a great announcement. Well, I think it's time you knew the truth. I'm gay. (laughs) And at 9 o'clock. It's the show that Television Magazine has called the number one drama for murder and violence. You won't want to miss this week's In Cold Blood to see who will be the next to be gunned down. It all starts tonight at 8 o'clock on Channel 8 WSIN. I'm Greg Gwynn reminding you that sin is a terrible thing and that those who are entertained by watching others sin fall under the condemnation of God that is mentioned in Romans 1.28. Be careful what you watch on television because in spite of what the devil wants you to think, sin is always sin and it's never funny. Here's some quotes worth pondering. God's opinion is the only one that really matters. Marital infidelity is the breaking of one's solemn promise. It is the treacherous betrayal of one's closest friend. When the worst thing that ever could happen, happens, God is still there. Are you in a storm? If not, prepare, for the storm is coming. Whose advice are you taking, and whose example are you watching? It's amazing that those who sit on the sidelines seem to think that they are so qualified to make decisions for those who are actually involved in doing the work. An affliction rightly born can do much good. Our basic temperament is hard to change, but it can be improved upon as we strive to become more like Christ. Even skeptics have faith. They have faith that their skepticism is true. Man, wish I'd said that. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Colossians 3.17. Now, back to the program. Back on the program, talking with King Collins about emergency baptisms. Uh, Ken, we we are you with us still? Yes, I am. Okay, good. Okay. Let, let me I go to us. Oh, go ahead. Yes, I, I wanted to sum up. If I tell someone baptism is not optional, and say you do not have the uh, discretion to choose uh, about whether you're baptized, right? But I say it's not required. I'm saying God um, has the right to you know, to uh, recognize the special circumstance, so you needn't worry. So, you know, about somebody who died a long time ago, unbaptized. So, when I say that it's not optional, I'm taking away a person's, uh, I'm taking away a person's misunderstanding that they could uh, choose not to be baptized because uh, God will decide it isn't required in their case. It's not up to you to do that. Right. I, no, no man yeah. could make that. Uh, no, the, nobody can do that. Right. So I'm saying, look, it is not optional. You have to do it. Now, if you say, hey, that's not fair, then you say, look, it's not required because God can do anything he wants, but don't presume upon his mercy. That, that, I think that's really key right there, Ken, is that someone would be taking an outlandish risk to forego baptism on the possibility that God would extend an uh, an, exempt, an exemption to them for not having been baptized. I, I, 
and again, I, we, we just couldn't do that basing our teaching on the revelation of God's word. So I, I, I think we're close on that, but I, I would I would word it certainly different than you. But I think I think we understand one another. Let me go to another question. Yeah. And I got this. Uh, uh, this this came from your article as well. I want to know if you believe that there, in general cases, maybe not in the specifics of an emergency, but in in general cases, are there requirements, are there special requirements for the person who does the baptizing? You In your article, you mentioned someone who was a member of the clergy and others who are not members of the clergy. (coughs) Do you think that there are special requirements of the baptizer in in general instances not so much in 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 the situation or the scenario that you describe as an emergency but in general cases do you think that the person doing the baptizing would have to have special credentials of some sort or another well i think the the person doing the baptism has to meet one requirement only and and now i'm not speaking i'm speaking by what the uh what the church is saying all right. The uh, the uh, the person doing the baptism has to meet one requirement. They have to intend to do a valid baptism. Okay. Now, uh, how would uh, now? Okay, give me a little more information along that line. Can they? They would have. In other words, their intention would be must be. It, it, I think maybe you suggested. Uh, uh, some kids playing in a swimming pool, dunking one another under the water. I, you know, they have no intention of a legitimate baptism. Is that the kind of thing you're describing? Well, what I mean is that if uh, if you have a play, and in the course of the play, one of the characters is baptized, the uh, actor who is performing the baptism has no intention of doing a, a real baptism. It's it's just because it's something that happens in yeah. the play. I, I that agree is with not that. a valid baptism. Right. I so agree the with person that. who performs the baptism has to intend to do uh, a, a real baptism. Okay. Now, what about this idea of a clergy laity distinction? What? Tell me your thinking of that. Uh, how how, do, how does that work? And and where do you see that? Um, I don't. Uh, well, see, it is not really necessary for the baptizer to be clergy. However, um, if you in the case of an emergency baptism where the baptizer might not be clergy, um, as soon as you get home, so to speak, the first thing you want to do is go to a clergyman and make sure that it's done correctly. And so uh, if you're a Catholic or Episcopalian or something, then the, uh, they will do the rite of baptism for you, but since they do not rebaptize, uh, they would say, uh, if you are not already baptized, I baptize you. And then if there was anything incorrect about the emergency baptism, then it would be fixed. But um, if you have a baptism done by somebody who's not a clergyman, uh, then the best thing to do is to go see a clergyman when you can and have the conditional baptism to cover up any, you know, to fix any mistakes. Okay. Well... <clears throat> then the cat... I think my concern with that would be if, in other words, I'm going to baptize you, and and so if I don't do it right, then your salvation is at risk because I said I didn't do it right or I wasn't qualified, uh, or maybe I didn't have the right motive. It seems to me that that putting conditions on the baptizer. Uh, makes it makes opens up the potential anyway that your baptism could be null and void or ineffective if the person who baptized you wasn't all that he ought to have been that that gives me that gives me some pause i okay. I don't read in the scripture of, of any specific requirement of the baptizer I, I i just don't know where I would go to find those well um it's a practical, real-world thing. Is that if you have a, a you know a stage play in which there is a baptism as part of the story, then the actors who go through and uh, they are you know and they're baptized uh, you know by the actor who is baptizing them, there is no intent 
to do uh, a valid baptism for those those are not baptism. Right. I, I, I would I would agree with you on that. Yeah. Yeah, a woman wrote to me and she said that she was a, she was a Wiccan, okay? She doesn't believe in Christianity. And, uh, she fell asleep at her desk one day and her co-workers, when she woke up, her co-workers told her she was a Christian because she had been baptized and she said, what do I have to do to undo this? And I said, you don't have to do anything because you were not conscious. Uh, the baptism requires your participation I agree. also. I agree. And uh, Romans they did six, not seven. intend to do a real baptism. They intended to pull a prank. Yeah. Well, Romans six seventeen says that obedience must be from the heart. The context of Romans six is even talking about baptism, and so I think baptism must be from the heart. I and I can't do something from the heart if I'm, as you said, in that case, unconscious. Or if I'm not willing or if I don't have the right motive or the right understanding, then I certainly can't be obeying from the heart. So I would agree with you about that. Yeah. Uh, The person being baptized has to want it, and the person administering it has to earnestly desire to do it correctly. And uh, they they have to have that desire. And then it's a real baptism. But, you know, like if uh, if somebody's pulling a prank, or if it's in a play, or children playing in the swimming pool. Oh, those are not valid baptisms. Okay. All right. What about, uh, we've got just a couple minutes here before another break, but let me ask you a question. About, in your article, you mentioned don't re-baptize someone who's been previously baptized. What's your thinking on that? Well, see, that is the policy of all the mainline churches. Um there, there was a, a Catholic, or rather, there was a, a Methodist man who wanted to marry a Catholic woman, and he wanted to become a Catholic at the time. Now, whether that's a good or a bad idea or not is beside the point here. Um, the Catholic canon lawyer, that is the religious expert, called up my professor at the Methodist seminary that I attended and uh, asked him, uh, what did they do when they baptized this man? And the professor said, well, you know, I've got it right here in the service book. They would have done this and that. And then the canon lawyer in the Catholic Church said, okay, he is validly baptized. Now, they had to, you know, uh, they recognized the baptisms from other churches, but um, they do not re-baptize. And the reason for that is that um, it implies that God doesn't keep his promises. Um, there are really two parts to baptism. One is God's promise to the believer, and the other one is the believer's promise to God. So um, God always keeps the promises. So uh, churches do not re-baptize people. If, um, if you were a Presbyterian and you joined the Catholic Church and the priest baptized you, he would get in very serious trouble with his bishop. And the same thing is true uh, with the Episcopal Church. Rebaptism is not allowed. Okay. But now, the thing is that God doesn't go back on his promises, but we do. And so that part of baptism can be redone as often as we like, as often as we need it. Now, so, explain, I, don't, I, think, I don't understand that. Uh, when, when you say, pardon? in other words, if I... If I desired to be baptized again, I could be, or what are you saying there exactly? No, uh, see, the, 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 and we have a pastoral thing here is the person was baptized and then they did all sorts of sinful things. They feel guilty and they confess and repent and all of that. Then they say, Pastor, uh, I need to be baptized again, okay? And the pastor says, no, God made promises to you, and he's going to keep them, and uh, he doesn't go back on his promises, and nothing you do can make him change his mind about that. And uh, so, no, we'll not re-baptize you. However, we can do the part where you made the promises to God because you broke your promises. God did not break his. Okay. Uh, so that's why the churches do not rebaptize. Well, I was thinking of a case in in Acts chapter 19 when the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus. He found some men who had been baptized, 
But he realized he, by asking a few questions, he realized that their understanding was not accurate when they were baptized, and they were baptized again. What would you say about well, someone who says, I was baptized, I, I, I did the physical act of baptism, but I didn't understand what I was doing. I had a, a situation just yesterday where a, a woman wanted to be baptized again because she said when I was when she was a teenager and she was baptized, she realized she didn't know what she was doing and did it under sort of duress and maybe didn't understand all the purposes of it. And, and she had been constantly worried that she was not uh, – had not been properly baptized, although the act was proper – she was afraid that her mind and her understanding and her motivation were not proper. What would you say about that? Okay, well, you've got two situations there. Uh, Paul baptizing people who had been baptized in John's baptism, and uh, the woman who's not sure that her earlier baptism is valid. Okay, in the woman's case, that's where we would do a conditional baptism. We would say, okay, you know, if you are not already, you know, we add the words, if you are not already baptized to it. Look, if you are not already baptized, I baptize you. All right. Then uh, that way um, we're, not, uh, we're not repudiating the early baptism, because what if she's wrong? What if the earlier baptism was correct? We don't create a pastoral problem by suggesting to her that God might go back on his word. Okay. So, look, hey, God made those promises, he's going to keep them. So we don't redo that part. Yeah. Uh, we, but what we can do is say, look, if it was wrong, we'll fix it. Well, so if you're that, not I, already baptized, I that, baptize that, you, and so forth. Yeah, that's so, that's that. Now that's that's something I've never heard before, Ken. And I, I got to say that that that, that uh, I, I don't know where I would go in Scripture to justify that that course of action, and I don't know. I don't know anything about conditional baptisms in the scripture, so I I would have some problem with that. I I, I just feel like either baptism is it is right and uh, the the motive and the purpose and the action is correct, or it's not. And I'm not a judge of hearts. I can't judge what's in that what was in that woman's heart back years ago when she was a teenager. I couldn't have if I was there at the time. I couldn't have judged her heart. Certainly, this this many years removed, I couldn't judge her heart. Her 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 concern was that it's it's not it it wasn't right, and and so it's very easy to be baptized for the uh, with the, with the certainty that you're entering into that act with the right motivation of heart, obeying from the heart. Uh, Romans six seventeen. Uh, okay, you you don't know. Um, she may be mistaken. Um, she's in distress. It might be an emotional problem. Um, she is uncertain, she's insecure, but maybe it was a valid baptism. Uh, you don't want to repudiate that. Well, so, I, I don't know what, what would be. I don't know why I would call that a repudiation. I mean, uh, as as I was talking to her yesterday, I said, you know, to be baptized, you know, someone says, well, have I wasted? So if she was baptized forty years ago. Uh, all these 40 years she's been serving in the, in the Lord's church, are those 40 years wasted if her baptism back when she was a teenager wasn't right? I would say no, because we're not earning our salvation anyway. It's, it's not a no, matter we're not, of... We're not, we're not earning it, but see, we have the pastoral thing. We don't want to give people the impression that God doesn't keep his promises. Um, we also don't want to know too much. Uh, we do not know. Maybe the earlier baptism was correct. Um, we don't want to, um, you know, we don't want to do that. So we say, if you are not already baptized, I baptize you. And that, that covers it. Okay. And that also reassures the person that uh, if the original baptism was valid, that, you know, they, they're, you know, basically they're, they're covered. Okay. All right. Let's. We're, we're going to grab. An, we we got to grab another break here. Ken, hang on the line. I uh, got got some more questions. This is really interesting stuff. I, I uh, you're you're describing some things to me that I've never heard described before. So uh, thanks for for spending time with us here on the virtual Bible study. And and we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with uh, some more discussion. Well, we have to talk about the other scenario with uh, Paul. Okay. All right. We will do that. 
We'll Did be you right hear back. what they just said? Call okay. in during this break and let everyone know what you think. The virtual Bible study continues after this announcement. This is Greg Glenn with this week's bullet point. Imagine these scenarios. A boy is dating a girl that he is absolutely crazy about. She's a Christian, and he knows that he can make some points with her if he's baptized, so he is. Or, a teenage girl has lots of friends at a summer camp. One night at the camp, several of those friends are baptized. She wants to be accepted by her peers, so she decides to be baptized too. Or, a man works for a company owned and operated by a man who is a strong Christian. He begins attending church services to impress his boss. He knows that being baptized would be a very big deal to the owner of the company, so he decides to do it. Or, a fellow who needs money, maybe a place to live, and other material considerations, visits a church. He finds out pretty quickly that these are good people who are generous and helpful. He figures that if he is baptized, even more goodies will come his way, so he goes forward to be baptized. Now, in all of these cases, we would strongly argue that the baptism is not right, that the results of such baptism are not effective to the saving of the soul, and that such a person, if and when they are truly convicted, should be baptized again. The root of the problem being, of course, the improper motivation of their initial baptism. Paul commended the Romans because they had, quote, obeyed from the heart, Romans chapter 6, verse 17. It's interesting that the obedience in view in that context is baptism. Look at verses 3 through 5. From this, we correctly argue that true and effective baptism must be for the right reason. Now, one more scenario. A man attends a denominational church that teaches that baptism is not necessary for salvation. They claim that one is saved by faith only. Yes, they practice baptism, but their teaching is that it is done at some point after one is saved as, quote, an outward sign of an inward grace. In other words, a person is baptized because he has been saved, not in order to be saved. Many passages teach the error of this doctrine, like Mark 16, 16, Acts 2, 38, 1 Peter 3, 21, Acts 22, 16, and more. This man learns the truth on the subjects and realizes that he was taught incorrectly and that he was baptized with the wrong motive of heart. What should he do? His situation is not essentially different from the one cited earlier. He has not obeyed from the heart because in his heart he did not understand what he was doing or why he was doing it. He should be baptized again for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I'm Kate and I'm three years old and this is the Virtual Bible Study. Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the Virtual Bible Study. We're back on the Virtual Bible Study. Just a reminder that this program is brought to you each week on Thursday night at 8 o'clock Central Time by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Visit our website at collegeview.com. If you have questions, if we can be of assistance to you, let us know. Send us an email. Give us a phone call. Our telephone number is toll-free, 877-381-4567. Send us an email to questions at collegeview.com. We're on the phone with Ken Collins. who is in McLean, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. He's a, a minister with the uh, uh, Disciples of Christ congregation there. And we're talking about baptism. Uh, we found his website. If you're interested in checking out his website, go to kencollins.com. And we're asking some questions and do, doing some study together about baptism. Ken, are you still with us? Yes, I am. Okay. Uh, you wanted we, to comment yeah, about I the Acts 19. Yeah, go ahead. You you wanted to comment about Acts 19, where Paul uh, rebaptized some men there when he found out that they had not been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, well, see, what I'm going to say is that he did not rebaptize them, and uh, that is because um, the word "baptize" had a broader meaning back then. We look in the Greek New Testament and see "baptizein." We take the letters, we put them into our letters, and stick them in our Bible, and it only applies to a Christian baptism. But it actually means to dip stuff in water, and it was also applied to the uh, Jewish ceremony of the Mixa bath. In those days, all of the Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem were in the Diaspora, and they used a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and Jesus used it, uh, there, he made an argument. He clinched an argument with the wording of the Greek uh, Old Testament, 
and it was considered divinely inspired and was used in rabbinical debate. But the word baptized then in Greek, they all spoke Greek, which is how in Acts uh, Gentiles could run to the synagogue and check the scrolls to see if Paul was right, and that's because the scrolls were in Greek. All right. So anyway, the word baptized, we borrow from Greek, also means a Jewish mikvah bath, which is for cleansing. And if you are, if you convert to Judaism, um, you have to have a mikvah bath. In other words, you have to have a Jewish baptism. And uh, in some places, some cities, they have buildings with that so that people can go take this cleansing bath. Well. Uh, two things is that John the Baptist was not doing Christian baptism. He was doing a baptism of uh, repentance and confession, and that is the Jewish mikvah bath. He was preaching a Jewish revival where the people would then cleanse themselves with this mikvah bath, which uh, is a custom that still exists today. Um, Jesus, uh, was in talking to the Pharisees, uh, ridiculed uh, their over-enthusiastic application of this, that they were washing their kitchen utensils. They were baptizing their knives, forks, and spoons. But, you know, that's way over the top. And that was the Jewish mikvah bath. So the word baptized to the people in the New Testament is ambiguous. It could mean a Jewish, uh, a Jewish uh, purification bath which you would do, a Gentile would do if they converted to Judaism, or it could mean a Christian baptism, which was less common in the early days when Christianity wasn't so big. Well, there's just, so, a, I mean, right. uh, that's interesting stuff, but I, I, I'm just going to the text, Ken, in Acts 19, uh, verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That sounds like Christian baptism to me. Right. So, they had been baptized with John's baptism. That is, they had a Jewish mixed bath to purify them in their confession and repentance, but it doesn't have forgiveness involved in it. And uh, it isn't a Christian baptism. So they were baptized that way, which is a Jewish baptism, it's a mixed bath. And then Paul says, you have to be baptized in Jesus' name, which is the same thing as you have to be baptized with Jesus' authority, which means you have to be baptized the way Jesus said, or another way of saying is that, okay, uh, you were dipped in water, but you didn't have a Christian baptism, so we have to do a Christian baptism. Okay. That, 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 that's, that, that's a different explanation than I've heard or, or that I, than I understand. But it, uh, I'm, I, I need to I need to hurry on to a couple other questions here. I want to ask you, Ken. Uh, what about substituting sprinkling? Now you're from a Christian church background. I know that the Christian church practices immersion yep. for baptism. But can it can sprinkling be considered a valid baptism? And and for that matter, would would sprinkling would an emergency situation make a difference? Let's say, typically, I would immerse people, but let's say I've got a person who's on their deathbed, literally, and uh, maybe it's going to be very hard to get them uh, to be immersed. Is sprinkling a valid baptism? In particular, would would an emergency situation like that make it valid? Okay, well, let, let's go back to the Catholic Church, and they're the fussiest and the most legalistic, okay? Um, if you were lost in the desert with a Muslim companion in a sandstorm, and you were got into a panic about baptism, and there's no water, um, the, the Muslim, earnestly desiring to help you in your problem, could baptize you with sand. And the Catholic Church would accept that as valid because there's no water there, All right? Yeah, well, the Catholic we Church would that, accept a uh, lot of things that I don't accept. I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm asking what you think, whether or not. Well, that, what I think, what I think is, it is, it is an invalid first choice. I would not baptize a person by sprinkling because it's convenient or that's what I want to do. Okay, uh, no, baptized by immersion. It's a little more complicated than that, but. Now, baptism by immersion. Now, if for some reason 
the person cannot be immersed. Okay, they they uh, you know there there are medical conditions where immersion might kill a person, and we want them to see the Lord, but not quite that quickly. Um, but then we can pour water on the head. Um, I don't know of uh, at the present there there is no major religious Christian group that does baptism by sprinkling. But uh, it's actually pouring. Um, it's to simulate uh, immersion. But anyway, this goes back to the first century, and this is not scripture, of course, I have to say that, but it does tell us how the first century church interpreted this. There's a manual on baptism called the Didache. And over, the, over a period of 100 years, scholars have validated and authenticated it. Uh, what it says, it says a lot of stuff, but what's important to us is it says that baptism must be done by immersion in running cold water. All right? Yeah, so but again, Ken, be, but, but it Ken. It has to be cold water. It has to be running, that is, a river or a stream, and uh, it has to be by immersion. But you're citing human sources there. I mean, I, where would we go from the Scripture to, to qualify that? Well, I, I guess probably that I, I, in our discussion, Ken, I think probably what you're seeing, the difference in some of the things you're explaining and the way we would approach it is we want to base this soundly upon scriptural evidence. Uh, you're, you're citing a lot of church history uh, uh, somewhat removed from the first century. As I said earlier, I'm, I'm concerned that uh, a, a lot of apostasy had already crept into the church, and we can't we can't use that as authoritative because we don't know that they were even practicing true religion in some of these deeds. Okay, well, the, um, the when I say it was authenticated, it was used by what we would call the mainline church of the time. Everybody it described everybody's behavior from Armenia to Spain. All right. Everybody did it this way. Uh, we have letters to Nigeria who traveled throughout the Mediterranean and described uh, Christian churches everywhere. They all did baptism the same. Okay. They did not have an easy way to communicate with each other. So the, what the information they got were from their founding apostles. But we're trying... You see, this is not scripture, but it is valuable. It's sort of like saying, I don't understand this Bible passage, so I'll go ask Pastor Fred. Pastor Fred is not a scriptural authority, but he is closer to it, and, and he's a, a, a person to consider. So if we go back to the first century, we're going back to people who were eyewitnesses, and we're saying, how did they do it? And then we're just taking it into account. We're not making an end of well, you know the, the, the rules. But, but the thing so of it is, Ken, yeah, I, I don't know yeah, any... I don't know any historical scholar who argues that baptism in the first century church was performed exclusively by immersion. I, I don't know. I, I've never come across a single historical scholarly reference that suggested that in the first okay, century, well, under the guidance of the inspired is, apostles, there was anything other than immersion. It ha- no, it is immersion. The, the Didache says, um, that it should be by immersion in running cold water. So, you know, like a river, uh, a person being immersed, not, a, not a, uh, a river from a hot spring, but a river, running water, immersion. Now, if cold water is not available, then warm water. If running water is not available, then still water. So if you don't have a river or a stream that you can use for baptism, it's okay to use a pond. All right? And uh, so it says, if immersion is not possible, then pouring. So it's sort of like the ideal and then the uh, things you can do. If it, now, that's what they did. You know, that's um, fair. But, but that approach, that approach, Ken, is, is just foreign to our thinking uh, that, that we can substitute anything for what God has specified if Based upon circumstance or conditions, is I mean, I you agreed earlier that you know sometimes people stepping out on a limb and taking a great chance. Uh, the, your description from the church fathers suggests that men back then do what men did what men today do, and that is they 
they supplant the, the strict teaching of Scripture with their own human wisdom. And, and I, I just, I'm concerned that we would use that kind of thinking as a basis for our determinations as to what to do today. The only thing I know from the yep. Scriptures about what, what we must do is to be immersed in water for the remission of sins in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And beyond that, I couldn't teach. In other words, those church fathers were teaching things that are not found in the Scripture. Their opinion about that wouldn't be any better than yours or mine or, or anybody else's. Uh, no, it, it, their opinion would be better, but it isn't scripture. Okay, real, right? real quickly. John says in two places that the Bible does not contain everything that Jesus said. It just contains enough to bring you to faith. Then, in Matthew 28, uh, Jesus commands the apostles to pass on all of his commandments to their followers. So it appears that there were some things that Jesus said that aren't written in the New Testament because the New Testament isn't the manual of church discipline. And they taught their followers, and their followers were the early church fathers. Now, were the early church fathers right or wrong? Um, you know, I don't know. But they are worthy of serious consideration because they are more likely to have gotten something right than us. All right? And it doesn't say anything in the Bible about people being immersed. In fact, the parts of the Jordan River are not deep enough to immerse people. Yeah, but parts of it but, are because uh, John was uh, baptizing in Ene and near to Salem because there was much water there. We know that John yeah, chose a spot. There was a lot of water. That's right. Which he would have to do if he's baptizing. But the, uh, the Jewish baptism, the person has to be totally immersed. Uh, they go down and nobody... You know, you baptize yourself, essentially, in a Jewish mikvah bath. You go down um, until you are fully submerged, and then you come up, and when you come up, you uh, when you break the surface, you are in the act of praying. And that is exactly how they describe Jesus' baptism. Um, We're just all but out of time, Ken. i got to ask you one more question about baptism. Uh, a very interesting discussion we've had with you. I think it's uh, illuminated several differences in our approach to the Scripture, but that's interesting. I, I, I appreciate your willingness to discuss these things. With one more question, and then we've got to—we're going to have to wrap it up for the hour. But is there okay. a special formula of words that need to be said in your article? You suggested what a person should say if they were conducting this emergency baptism. Do you think that there? is a necessary formula of words that the baptizer must say over the person being baptized in order to make it an effective baptism? Um, I have to say, first off, a surprising thing, I'm not sure. Okay. All right. It's like, it's like divinity. It says, use flowing cold water, then we can use this. It's, it's not giving us a license. It's saying, you have to do this. But, you, ha- you, know, you have to do your very best. You know, if you discover that something you're going to do a baptism and something is missing, then you do your best. That is what you do. You have to do your best. Okay? So you're right about the scriptural things. You have to do that. But we're human beings and we live in circumstances that are not ideal. So you do your best. That is what's important. It's, it's what the heart that is important. It's more important. It's important that we do the right things, but it's more important that we do them for the right reasons. Now, your question now is about the words. Okay, um, the Universal Church from the very beginning has used the words in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen: "I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit." In uh, in baptizing someone, that is what they've said during the immersion. Uh, will another formula work? Okay. We say, uh, I uh, baptize you in Jesus' name, which really means I'm giving you a Christian baptism. Um, you know, well, then we get back to this. You're working whatever you say. You are doing it with a firm conviction that this is the right way to do it, and you're motivated. That what, your heart is right. You want to do it the right way. And so... Uh, you want to baptize someone by saying, in Jesus' name, 
then uh, if that's what you understand, I can't imagine that God has suddenly become a legalistic Pharisee. But well, we know that Jesus. Yeah, we know that Jesus said. Huh? We know that Jesus said in Matthew twenty-eight, uh, verse nineteen, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. But what I really think that is is a description of the authority by which we do the baptizing. I don't think he was saying say these words. I think he was saying do it by this authority. No, I I think there is an awful lot to. Uh, you know, to uh, back up your position. I think there's an awful lot to do it. Um, in Scripture, when it says they baptize people in Jesus' name, it's talking about a baptism that happens somewhere else. No one says those words to anybody. And in, uh, in Matthew 28, Jesus says that baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, nobody says that to anyone in a baptism. So what words do we say in a baptism? Okay? Um, but that's an open question I can't answer. But we do know, historically, the Church has used Matthew 28, 19 and required it. Now, that might be a matter of Church discipline. If you've got a giant, huge Church and ministers all over the place and you want to make sure the sacraments are done correctly, you're going to set up some rules. And you're going to say, when you do a baptism, you, you must do it this way to make sure that it's done correctly. So the idea of saying Matthew 28:19 over the candidate when you're baptizing them might be more a matter of church discipline than uh, biblical instruction because, you know, the Bible doesn't really say what words to say to the person. Okay. All right? All right. Ken, so, we're just out but, of time. But, we're just out of time yeah. on the virtual Bible study for this episode. Uh, we want to thank you for spending an hour with us tonight and, and discussing some, I think, interesting aspects of the, of the very important subject of baptism. We've, we've, uh, uncovered some differences of understanding and application, I'm sure. Uh, but we do appreciate your willingness to discuss these things with us and, and hope that our listeners have benefited by a, uh, sort of a deeper investigation of this important Bible subject. Ken, uh, Ken Collins, uh, at, let's see, let me see, I had your, uh, KenCollins.com. Uh, for those of you who are listening who would like to check out his website, go to a very easy website to find Ken Collins, K-E-N-C-O-L-L-I-N-S, KenCollins.com. And you can check out a number of things that Ken has written at that website. Ken, thanks for joining us on the virtual Bible study tonight. We appreciate the good uh, good discussion we've been able to have. Yeah, uh, can I tell you two things quickly? Sure. Um, we're not on the air, I guess. No, we still are. All right. The first thing, just briefly to let you know, is because of the discoveries of the letters of the jury that describe baptisms all over the Mediterranean basin. The Catholic Church is changing its baptism right and uh, so for adults. And so when they baptize adults, uh, if it is possible, they do it by immersion. In some churches, they don't have the architecture to do that. But they're building new Catholic churches with baptismal fonts, and people are being baptized by immersion. All right? Um, the other thing is, um, if you baptize a person by saying the word, you immerse them in water, and you say the words in Matthew 28:19. Um, that baptism will be considered valid in all of the mainline churches. That's completely portable. So if the person that you're baptizing decides, and you put it on the baptismal certificate, you know, so that a person can tell what you did, um, then that baptism is going to be accepted as valid in every religious group. I mean, they can go to the Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Methodist Church or the Presbyterian Church, Lutheran or Episcopalian, they will all accept it as a valid baptism. So the, the, uh, the value of uh, using Matthew 28:19 is that makes the baptism universally acceptable to all the churches. Ken, we've got to run. We're out of time. Uh, again, I thank you for spending time with us on the virtual Bible study tonight. We've got to do a little bit of sign-off information here. But, uh, again, thanks, Ken. KenCollins.com oh, okay. for any of you who okay. care to check out that website. <laughs> thanks for joining us tonight, Ken. Mm-hmm. Good night. We're out of time for the virtual Bible study. I noticed Kevin in the uh, – sorry for those of you who have been in uh, – a lot of good discussion going on in the chat room. Uh, I noticed uh, – 
Kevin Kelly uh, mentioned that Jacob been quiet. We've, we've been under a strain here. Just as we were getting started, Jacob's children were uh, in uh, tonight, and one of them fell and cut his head open, and they've had to take him to get stitches uh, on his on his head where he cut himself. So that's why Jacob has not only been quiet, he's been absent from the virtual Bible study tonight. We've been trying to make do the best we can. Uh, we, we appreciate you for being there, for all who've listened, for the participation in the chat room. Uh, an interesting discussion with Ken Collins. Uh, uh, I think it illustrates a, a big difference in our the way we approach Scripture. Uh, we try to very strictly base our practice upon what is stated in the Word of God. Uh, Ken Collins, on the other hand, uh, is more inclined to take church history, the early church fathers, uh, other information, uh, and base decisions on that. And I, I, I just think that's a wrong approach because we know that there was an apostasy taking place early on in the in the history of the church, and so those church fathers are affected. The writings, their writings, may very well be affected by that apostasy. Anyway, we're out of time. Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study tonight. Uh, Lord willing, there'll be a more calm and peaceful production next Thursday night. Join us at that time. Uh, until then, read your Bible, study it, live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.